Hello there, my name is D.E. Foster and I am host of the Benzo Free Podcast at Easing Anxiety. And welcome to the Bind Roundtable, featuring the Benzodiazepine Survey Research Team. This roundtable was produced to support the publication of our team's third and final paper of the Benzodiazepine Survey of 2018 and 2019. In this paper, we formally introduced the term benzodiazepine-induced neurological dysfunction, or BIND. Please join our moderator, Angela Peacock, and several members of the research team for a lively discussion of benzodiazepines, their symptoms and adverse life effects, and this protracted condition we now call BIND. Angie, take it away. Hi, everybody. My name is Angie Peacock. I'm a social worker and a coach within the community. Today, we're going to be doing a roundtable, and we're going to be discussing some new research coming out about benzodiazepine-induced neurological dysfunction, yeah. or known as BIND. Yep. All right, so let's just go around. Um, everybody introduce yourself. Just tell us about your your work, how you came to this team. Well, um, yeah, I'll start off since okay. I'm next to you, yeah. and then I'll, we'll, I'll pass it to the next person. Okay, my name is D.E. Foster. Um, I host a site called Easing Anxiety and host the Benzodiazepine podcast which helps support people dealing with benzodiazepine injury um, and I'm also a co-chair of the benzodiazepine action work group along with Dr. Alexis Ridfo and on different research teams like this one and committees and stuff and just keep myself busy so um, that's me I'll pass it off on to Alexis since I just mentioned you I'm going to pass it to sure. you. So I'm Alexis Ritvo. I'm a board-certified addiction psychiatrist and assistant professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine um, and our program director for Addiction Psychiatry Fellowship. Um, came to know Dee and um, as well as Dr. Christy Huff on here through our work with the Benzodiazepine Action Work Group, um, as well as also our work here as this research group um, uh, through the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, where I'm also the medical director, um, and have just had an increasing interest in helping patients that are prescribed benzodiazepines um, and having adverse effects figure out how to minimize those effects and decrease the risks um, and taper off or decrease as much as, as able. I'll, I'll pass it along to uh, Dr. Christy Huffson. She's below me in my view. <laughs> So I'm Christy Huff, and I'm director of Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. We're a nonprofit that um, educates about the adverse effects of prescribed benzodiazepines, and I have lived experience with benzodiazepine withdrawal and mind. And I've been involved with the survey basically since the beginning. I was approached by um, Jane McCubrey, who was the survey designer. She had actually been harmed by benzodiazepines as well. And so um, together we put together the survey questions and administered it in um, several of the benzodiazepine support groups. And then um, later on a research team was formed and here we are onto our third paper and it's just been a great experience so far. You just answered her first question, first you jumped ahead. <laughs> but that's great, we'll feed off that in a second there for you, Christy. It's just a natural progression. It is. <laughs> But your turn to hand it off to somebody. Uh, Reed. Hi, uh, my name is Reed Finlayson, and uh, I'm a psychiatrist and addiction medicine uh, uh, boarded uh, professor of psychiatry at uh, Vanderbilt University. Uh, and uh, I got involved uh, with uh, benzodiazepines through some lived experience with mental illness and um, some uh, research in the uh, early 90s uh, that, that I was um, observing. And um, I was excited by the, uh, the survey uh, that uh, Jane and Christy uh, uh, so ably put together uh, and uh, was delighted to be able to uh, help out uh, uh, analyzing it and, and uh, uh, interpreting it, and um, I'm going to call on uh, my mentor and uh, research expert uh, to introduce himself, Dr. Peter Martin. Thanks a lot, Reed. Um, <laughs> I'm a professor of, uh, of, of psychiatry and, uh, and pharmacology at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Uh, I have, uh, I'm also an addiction psychiatrist uh, I, I've been studying central nervous system depressants since the mid-70s of the last century. Um, and 
I've actually done research on benzodiazepines since about that time uh, when they first came out. Um, and, you know, I, I, I have been struck by how serious a problem it is. Um, my perspective has always been that it's very easy to discontinue patients from benzodiazepines because I developed a technique to do so back in the 70s and it seemed to work really well until I met a group of individuals who uh, have helped uh, to point out to me and to actually convince me of what a toxic problem uh, this can be for the individual's uh, life and for you know all the different aspects of, of, of living. So uh, I am very pleased to be part of this group. Reed got me involved, Reed Finlayson, and uh, I've, I've just loved working with this team. You guys, you guys all are, have impressive uh, histories and you bring such talent to this team. So let's talk about the papers, the research that's come out. Maybe start with the survey. Like what, what was in the survey? What were you looking for? And take us through papers one, two, and now three. Christy, you want to start off with maybe how this, we got started? Sure. So um, I'll just recap a little because you've heard some of it. I was approached by Jane McCubrey, who's a communication specialist, and she um, basically designed the survey with my input. We looked at um, basically benzodiazepine withdrawal scales that were already in the literature, um, and that helped inform the survey questions. But we also incorporated um, our own lived experience as well, and also my experience in advocacy. You know, I've spoken to many other um, patients dealing with um, benzodiazepine-related issues in the support groups. And so all of that informed the questions that we asked um, in the survey, and specifically, we're asking questions like what benzodiazepine the patient was taking. We wanted to know about the symptoms that we were that they were experiencing, and we asked about 23 specific symptoms that um, that seemed to be um, fairly common. Um, and and we also asked about life effects as well. So then paper one was uh, centered about experiences with benzodiazepine use, tapering, and discontinuation. Discontinu and then paper two was enduring neurological sequelae of benzodiazepine use and internet survey. So take us, take us through paper three. What is the pending research that's coming out? Alexis, since you're leading that one, do you want to take that? Yeah, one? so paper three was further analysis of the, the results from the survey. Um, and um, with a real focus on since, so we had a, a group of us along with several others that have been um, part of the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Pest Practices and that are various clinicians and researchers um, decide upon what we wanted to call this protracted withdrawal state um, that we've been you know, seeing uh, in folks that are are on prescribed benzodiazepines and in the process of tapering off and even when they discontinue and feeling like protracted withdrawal wasn't adequate. So part of the paper was describing the process of um, how we came up with the name benzodiazepine-induced neurological dysfunction or BIND, um, and then also analyzing the data to look for the results that um, supported the name bind. So what are the variety of symptoms as well as especially as, as Christy already mentioned, the, the significant life effects um, that these benzodiazepines have on individuals as they're tapering and even once they're off of them. Um, and so that was uh, the, the third paper is really trying to, to make a case for bind and, and demonstrate what, what unfortunate effects these medications have. Yeah, I might add a little bit to it, and then I might see if Reed and Peter might be. Yeah, able to you know the data very yeah, well. Yeah, so I'm, the, I'm the data guy. I'm the talk about the, the data the numbers. So, um, yeah, one of the things we noticed specifically was um, the length of some of the symptomatology that was asked about, and um, and we noticed that um, typical withdrawal syndromes like hallucinations, seizures, whole body tremors, um, they were showing up in a very short duration on there. So the first 30 days, you know, what's usually attributed to acute withdrawal. But then we noticed different symptoms were more the longer term, um, months or years lasting. I, I, I think the, the really 
important observation from my perspective was that I had always thought of benzodiazepines as a short-term phenomenon, that you uh, withdraw people, you get them over the really hard, hard hump of getting them off the benzodiazepines, and then you forget about it because they're back to normal. Uh, in fact, that's what we're taught in medical school. That's what I wrote in pharmacologic textbooks, uh, chapters that I've written in pharmacologic textbooks. Um, and to me, it was eye-opening that there were people who had symptoms that were really quite uh, devastating to them. Uh, and, and they came, uh, they were there a year or more after the person came off the benzodiazepine. It's almost as if the benzodiazepine had altered how the brain works. And uh, so it wasn't, it, 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 it was something that we could not get rid of by stopping the benzodiazepine. It's something that was residual. And so the question really is, are withdrawal and is this prolonged set of symptoms, so-called bind, a different set of conditions? And I think that, that was the, that was the eye-opening observation, that in fact, these are likely two different insults on the central nervous system. And by the effects on the central nervous system, it affects the entire body. So, uh, because of course, you know that all the, all the systems of the body are innervated by the central nervous system in one way or the other. So that was, that's my observation. Dr. Finlayson, can you, can you say what surprised you about the research or what did you learn? Um, I, I, I would agree with what uh, Peter said. Uh, I, 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 I think it, it is a really important finding because I think we have to explore this more and uh, find out, like it, it was just a survey paper of, of uh, a number of people uh, selected because of concern that they were having reactions or symptoms uh, when they were trying to discontinue benzodiazepines or they had uh, uh, completely, uh, uh, in many cases, discontinued them and these symptoms persisted. What we, what we need to find out is, uh, is to refine the, the cluster of symptoms and then um, uh, uh, look for it sort of before and after in a different type of research, um, before and after starting the benzodiazepines to see if we can uh, learn more uh, 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 about the phenomenon. What, what our survey lacks is a, uh, a careful understanding of the, the sorts of problems that people were prescribed uh, benzodiazepines for and what illnesses they, uh, they may have had that were uh, you know, we're developing independently. We just don't know. Uh, but it certainly is a, a, an important um, uh, a finding and uh, something that deserves further research. Thank you. So can you, so can someone answer, how did you finally settle on the term BIND, benzodiazepine-induced neurological dysfunction? How did that come about? Um, that would be a Bernie question. Just so you know, Bernie Silvernail, another member of our team, but not available to join us at last okay. minute. He had to fly somewhere. But I don't know if somebody else wants to take that one for now. I mean, I can try to describe that. Now I'm trying to look for uh, the exact process we uh, underwent. Uh, anyone remember that the exact? It was a Delphic. Delphic is the word you're looking for. Yes. Delphic? A Delphic, Delphic process. Approach. So we went through um, multiple rounds with this group of, of experts. Um, 27, if I recall correctly, pretty close. Um, where we put forth all the terms that folks wanted to consider from, you know, benzodiazepine protracted withdrawal, benzodiazepine um, uh, post-acute withdrawal, various, um, I think we, we talked about uh, benzodiazepine induced psychological dysfunction, neurological dysfunction, and we just kept going through process of um, voting on all of them, and then we narrow down the list a little more based on which ones got votes and which ones didn't at all. 
through multiple rounds until um, uh, we got to the, to the final potential names and people kind of put forth their argument of why um, we thought one name versus another would be uh, a better choice. Um, and I think what I recall and others can contribute what they remember is that we thought BIND was helpful because by focusing on neurological dysfunction, it would encompass both the psychological effects and the physiological effects that individuals uh, harmed by benzodiazepines um, experience. Um, and that there, that if we only called it psychological or psychiatric, that that would, that would kind of pigeonhole it too much and um, kind of risk what we think a lot of patients already experience, which is being told this is, you know, all in your head, um, or only as, you know, part of maybe the original uh, mental health reason this might have been prescribed for many people if it, if it was sleep or anxiety even, and that that didn't represent what we're seeing, which is this really uh, broad effects of this medication um, throughout the nervous system and the brain. Um, so that was how we we got to bind. Um, plus, it makes a nice acronym, which is always good to have um, and easier to refer to. I don't know if others have other recollections or inputs about uh, the term. Well, I, I would just add the appropriateness of, of uh, a bind because uh, I was uh, I was impressed by by the number of uh, lifestyle uh, disabilities, you know, from work, uh, relationship, marriages, uh, uh, that uh, people appeared to be uh, uh, suffering uh, uh, problems with uh, or in a bind. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good point. Wow. Yep. Wow. Maybe it's worth it. I'll go ahead and read the, the definition as well. Yeah, right. I think that so. Um, it describes a constellation of functionally limiting neurologic symptoms, both physical and psychological, that are the consequence of neuroadaptation and or neurotoxicity resulting from benzodiazepine exposure. I'm wondering, I'm wondering this is one, as a member of the team, one of the things I was confused on, and I wondered if maybe one of the guys, one of the doctors, which is everybody but me, um, can elaborate on is neurotoxicity and or neuroadaptation, some of the language we use in the paper. But can you define the difference there and why those terms? I know, Peter, you kind of presented some of those terms there. But for people like myself who aren't medically trained, how do those differentiate and wh why are those terms used in the paper? Okay, I, I, I think that it's uh, really important and is the crux of what we're talking about is to understand these two concepts. And I thank you for bringing it up. Neuroadaptation is actually a physiological response to uh, chronic exposure to a drug, acute and then chronic exposure to a drug. Things happen within the neurons that try to uh, equilibrate a system. So, so there are changes within the neuron that are in opposite direction to the effects of the agent, the drug. It's basically equilibrium. The body wants to maintain homeostasis, which means uh, a level, unchanged system. So if a drug like the benzodiazepines activates benzodiazepine or GABA receptors. One of the, uh, one of the um, um, GABA receptors are inhibitory neurotransmitters. So if it activates GABA receptors, uh, what the opposite, what, 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 what the body tries to do is increase excitatory neuroreceptors uh, and diminish the effect of GABA. So the GABA receptor changes its form so it becomes less effective because basically the brain wants to be level, right. okay? That's neuroadaptation. Neurotoxicity is pretty much like going up to your car and slashing the tires, okay? The car's not going to go really well because the tires don't work anymore. There's a, there is damage to the neuron. 
And that's not a physiological insult. That's a pathological toxic insult. And so what we're saying is that the acute withdrawal that the person experiences, the one that happens right after they stop using the drug, is really that physiological normalization of the brain. So it's a reversal of the pharmacologic effects of the drug. Whereas toxicity is something that stays there even when the drug is discontinued. So I, if, if, is, is that clear? At, at crystal clear. Yes, okay. thank, you for, thank you for explaining that. And I, I think I wanna go to the adverse life events. So that's on um, the paper three. These changes impact your life. It's, you know, it's not a little thing. So can you, can you talk about what did you find and what is gonna be in paper three? I actually have it in front of me, but if somebody wants to start off. I I, yeah, I have it in front of me. I'm, I'm happy to say, yeah. I mean, ahead, Alexis, yeah. The, the list is unfortunately very long mm -hmm. um, and um, includes, you know, things that uh, we've all, I mean, we've all seen from, um, so I'm trying to see which ones would be most relevant. So we look both at specific life consequences that folks um, attributed to the benzodiazepine use due to the symptoms they experienced from the benzodiazepine or and tapering or discontinuation. So significantly affecting relationships, uh, suicidal thoughts in 54.4% of individuals, um, losing a job or being unable to work because of symptoms in almost 50% of individuals, uh, um, significant increase in medical costs, loss of wages, loss of savings or retirement funds, uh, violent thoughts or actual violence against others. I mean, those are all um, the initial um, high-level ones that we saw. Um, so really, I mean, I think what's, what's remarkable is that it affects all areas of life, right? It negatively impacts all areas of folks' um, lives and not just uh, you know, limited scope, um, feeling unwell for a, a brief period of time. Yes. To me, I, to me, I'm just really proud of this team because I think this is the start of an evidence base for something to be recognized. Because right now the patients, they, you know, the, if the doctor doesn't know what it is and they can't recognize it, they can't have disability payments or treatment for it or support. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this is, you know, loss of income, loss of security, moving in with family. We, we all, we all have seen it. So I'm really proud of that. So for, for you all, so what's what's next for this team after this paper comes out, what's next? Working on that now, so. <laughs> yeah, almost there. Um, who wants to pick it up? I think, I think Reed pointed out the major issue. And uh, when, when he said that there are some real problems with our paper. One is that it's a group of people who by definition uh, you know, they, they were on a website that dealt with problems associated with benzodiazepines. They were a selected population, self-selected population. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think the really big test will be, can we identify these problems in a large sample, which are not self-selected? Mm -hmm can they be identified in a population of patients? And uh, here, in, if we do that study, we will know how common it is because that's really vital. That's the question that, that I think everyone is asking themselves. If I take benzodiazepines, how likely is it that I'm going to have bind? And I must assure you that we have no idea. We have no absolute idea. So you've, you're going to have to do a survey type of, uh, of a population that is not self-selecting for having problems associated with benzodiazepines. That's, that's really the, the, the next step and the vital step, in my opinion. Which, which I think might be kind of hard just because of the, 
I mean, I don't know how much you guys know about me, but I see over a hundred patients affected by this and other meds within my group. And I would say it's very rare to have a person just on a benzo. Mm -hmm. Very often it's a mixture. So that leads me to the next question, kind of, do we know anything about the long-term effects of other drugs um, similar to benzos? Like psychotropics and antidepressants. Yeah, and stuff antidepressants, like that. antipsychotics, anything. I mean, this is the start of the benzo research. Well, but... since we have a few addiction psychiatrists here, they might be able to help with that yeah. a little bit. So. <laughs> I mean, there's increasing research on it. Not, again, not as much as you would, one would hope, given how much we use these medications. Um, uh, and and Dr. Finlayson and Dr. Martin might be able to speak even more to this. I mean, I, I know, you know, we've seen increasing um, studies come out about how how we should be more cautious with with tapering antidepressants, with tapering antipsychotics, with distinguishing what's a return of symptoms versus um, discontinuation or withdrawal symptoms, um, that we need to be doing informed consent with patients, that these are risks that come with all of these medications that we prescribe. Um, I know I can say I still see many patients that do get, you know, great benefit from um, some of these medications, but that doesn't mean they're without risks or, or long-term effects. And, and we don't have good research that's really said what are the um, potential long-term effects with some of these medications. Some of them we know, like antipsychotics, um, will probably do a better job about educating some folks about their risks. Um, so yeah, it's complicated because you're right. If a patient's on one of these meds, they're more likely to be on another. Um, and that further complicates things. I do think we need more research to really look at first as, as uh, Peter mentioned, um, you know, how common is this in, in a more general population prescribed these medications. And then I think as the group knows, I love to refer to, let's take, you know, look at what's been done with long COVID and being done. Um, how do we, how do we take something that has such wide uh, ranging symptoms and try to tease apart which ones are really more particular to this um, to, to, to bind and which ones are more kind of more universal. Um, and also then that I think in turn will eventually help us try to understand more the mechanism that's at play. And why is it that certain individuals are so exquisitely sensitive to this and, and that you do treat some other individuals that seem to have very minimal um, you know, dysfunction or disruption uh, coming off these medications. And it's, it's just not well understood. And I think I see a real parallel to what we see with long COVID with some people just being completely debilitated by it. Um, and other folks, maybe it's short term or media, intermediate and other folks, you know, almost not affected at all. And that sometimes you, the first time you have no effect and you could get COVID again and then have long COVID. So I think that there's, you know, something similar as far as happening uh, in the nervous system, maybe the immune system, who, who knows. All right, so that leads us to our last question. Um, are there any new research projects coming out of this? Any new research projects on the horizon about benzo specifically? Well, for this team, we're looking into them so we can kind of go around the room here and talk. I know uh, Peter and Rita both kind of headed off. Dr. Finlinson and Dr. Martin are working on that area. Dr. Ridpo is leading up some other ones. Um, and I know Christy and I have been working on some other stuff. So each one of these, I think we kind of broke off and started to investigate different areas. Um, I don't know if uh, Christy, you want to start off with talking about some of the things we're looking into? Dee and I had looked at into doing a project looking at um, kind of a narrative study of Benzo Buddies, um, the website where, um, you know, a lot of people post about their experiences with benzodiazepine withdrawal and see, we're going to analyze some of the, the narratives and kind of look at some of the symptomatology and life effects, sort of similar to our survey, but maybe in a, you know, larger population. And, um, and then, you know, there's some other studies that we're looking at as well. And I'll let Alexis and Reed and Peter get into those. Yeah, so we're, I guess, a precursor to, I think, what what um, Reed and Peter are, are hoping to do, and the kind of, the group kind of tags along in that we all uh, support and encourage each other's research and end up involved. Um, uh, so we're looking, we're engaging in us trying to do 
a systematic, it will likely become more of a scoping um, literature review for the symptoms of BIND and more projected withdrawal and ad long-term adverse effects of benzodiazepines. Um, the literature is pretty sparse, unfortunately, but that just speaks to the great need for more research. Um, but trying to do it in a as systematic a way as we can to really say what is the quality of the literature that does exist on um, bind related symptoms um, and and where is the need uh, for for more research to try to um, further distinguish what it what is bind, how many people does it affect, what are the the symptoms? Um, and then I'll let Reed and or Peter discuss about what the the next steps. Uh, with with that piece are well, I, I think my concern is um, about the uh, overuse of uh, benzodiazepines, and uh, I still question uh, their effectiveness in in treating anxiety. Uh, they're, they're basically anesthetic drugs. You know, there are injectable forms of benzodiazepines like Percet that is. Mm -hmm that are used for uh, surgical procedures. And uh, uh, they, I, I'm, I, I'm concerned that they actually limit the ability to think through situations and learn from mistakes. Um, and and uh, the, the other aspect of it is the, uh, I, I, I've experienced uh, a, a, a lot of people um, uh, having increased symptoms of depression when they're taking benzodiazepines and suicidal thinking, particularly in, you know, there's a lot of research in, in the VA, Veterans Affairs uh, a community, that uh, the benzodiazepines actually make things worse for PTSD and uh, uh, cause, uh, or at least are associated with uh, veterans think, starting to think about suicide when they're on these uh, drugs. And uh, it, it feeds into the uh, opioid uh, situation uh, as well, in my experience, because uh, so many people with uh, uh, overdose uh, uh, deaths have uh, the benzodiazepine drugs in their system. Um, so, I mean, it's a huge uh, public health uh, problem. Um, Peter, what, what do you want to add? Well, you know, I am struck by the toxicity of benzodiazepines, but I'm also struck by humans, patients I see daily who I tell about the fact that benzos are not good to take and I have to fight with them to get them off. That they are very resistant. And I think part of that resistance may be that it's very painful to come off benzodiazepines. It's very painful. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think we're in a paradox here because on one hand, we'd like not to damage the brain with benzodiazepines. And on the other hand, benzodiazepines make people feel so good initially. Mm -hmm they feel as if their problems are alleviated by the benzodiazepines. And that's a paradox. So here I am in the position of telling patients, maybe you should get off the benzodiazepines. And they're asking not to get off the benzodiazepines. So a large part of the process is establishing a relationship with the patient, whereby the patient trusts you and the patient believes that what you want to do with them is for their benefit rather than taking something away from them that is so valuable to them. Mm -hmm. And that is really, really hard for both the patient and for the physician or the provider. So I think that our work is the beginning of educating both patients and physicians about the fact that there is a real problem here. There's yeah, a paradoxical problem that the medicine works too well in the beginning and it does too much harm throughout its use. 
And as you start to taper, especially if you taper too quickly, right, or or discontinue, people feel so bad that they can't imagine. um, They can't imagine a life without benzodiazepines. Yeah, and I I would say from personal experience and the people I work with, you know, when you have increased suicidal thoughts and you feel more depressed and you feel more anxious, of Mm -hmm. course you want to take the benzo because you feel like it's helping. So it's even confusing for a patient to think, Mm -hmm. what do you mean the medicine? This is helping me. You know, I need so it. I can't imagine me, not having it and feeling worse. You, let me yeah. just assure you that if you have a compassionate doctor, it's confusing for them too. Yes. Yeah. Yes. If you have, and that's why it's really important. And I think Alexis is is and 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 Christy and Dee who are engaged in education are fighting a really large part of this battle. Because let me just tell you that uh, our working together as a group has taught me something. I, I mean, I, I believe I was a world expert in this area and I never realized, never realized how, how toxic this was be, would be. I didn't, I, did, I stopped at the withdrawal syndrome. I didn't go on. And I think the other point that we didn't mention, which is really, really important, and in this paper, we we try to demonstrate that the components of BIND were distinctly different. The components of BIND that the individual experienced were distinctly different than the symptoms for which the benzos were first prescribed. Mm which is consistent with something emerging de novo as a result of the benzodiazepines with the limitations of our study that this is a selected population. And I think ultimately what we want to do, what Reed and I are working on is trying to develop Uh, a a protocol whereby we can identify all the people in our hospital system who are on benzodiazepines and try to study what the consequences of that are for them. That is not go in and study people who are complaining, but to study everybody who's on benzodiazepines and see how common these fine symptoms are. Yeah, we, we, we hope to do that with uh, a large data analysis and, and uh, data mining uh, in, in a, uh, a, a university medical system in, in cooperation uh, with the uh, University of Colorado where Alexis works. So I, this is one of my own questions. I This is all like patient-led survey data, outcomes, adverse life events, these things. Is there any effort to find out what is happening in the body? Like what is bind exactly? There is some well, research, but there's a real paucity of research. Mm-hmm. But there is some research emerging, which we quote in the paper, in the discussion section of the paper. Uh, suggesting that some aspects of the cell are actually damaged by chronic benzodiazepine use. Some aspects of the neuronal cells. So the cells become injured, not working quite right because of exposure to benzodiazepines. Hmm. It's important too that we um, we narrow down the uh, the, the, the symptoms of uh, a bind, so we know exactly what we're looking for. Yes, good point, good point. Exactly, yeah. Like points you in the direction of where to look. Right. When you find out right. what exactly, how does it show up, how, and then where do we look? So, yeah. This is good. So earlier I was talking about, you know, it's kind of rare to see a patient only on a benzo. Sometimes if they're on a benzo, they're also on antidepressants or antipsychotics or something else. Um, is there any effort to differentiate between the benzo long-term effects and the antidepressant long-term effects? 
I, I think uh, both concepts are so new and so poorly understood uh, that we need to learn a lot more uh, about the situation before uh, before we know what to do, basically. I, I, I wanted to um, add that uh, back in the 90s, um, I, I had the privilege of, of uh, uh, observing a, a very careful study of the treatment of um, uh, anxiety in the, in the form of panic attacks and agoraphobia that was very well done and occurred in populations near Toronto, Ontario, and Canada, and, and in uh, at the Maudsley Hospital in uh, London. The late um, uh, 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 doc, oh, um, the, the, uh, the late Dr. Richard Swinson uh, in, in Toronto and uh, Dr. Isaac Marks in, in uh, London uh, did an, an extensive series of studies uh, on the treatment of uh, uh, anxiety in the form of uh, agoraphobia and panic attacks. And it was uh, very tightly done, very well done. And what they, um, what, what they uh, showed is that the people who took benzodiazepines uh, didn't do quite as well as the people who uh, 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 took placebo and both groups had a, a psychological treatment. But a, a follow-up paper uh, uh, showed that the people who uh, gave credit to the, me the medication, in other words, they felt that the benzodiazepine was really helpful to them were the people that had relapses uh, in their symptoms uh, much more often than the people who uh, believed that they had, uh, you know, that th their efforts in psychotherapy had uh, improved them. Hmm. Interesting. Last question. This is it, right? Sure. And then we'll close. Okay. So I think this is the last question, but we've talked a lot about neuroadaptation, neurotoxicity, damage, cellular damage, all these scary things for the, the average patient to be listening to right now. So can you offer any hope? Like what kind of healing do you see maybe as like Dr. Ritvo, when you work with a patient who comes off, can you all offer some hope from your perspective? I'm, I'll, I'll kick it off since okay, I, I, go yeah, I'll go around this way because I've, I've been kind of I've been so busy listening yeah, to all too. the experts on here. They're amazing. <laughs> yeah. um, but I know from my standpoint, from working with the people, you know, do, doing the different work with the podcast and everything else is, yeah, just see a lot of healing going on. I mean, it's, you can't work with this group of people long enough to not see the progress people made. I know I've made progress. You've made progress. Yeah. Our lives have gotten significantly better. We do heal. Um, you know, none of us can speak, I think, to the to absolute knowledge about permanence or pos or not. But I know I see people healing every day and getting better. So uh, maybe go around the board and see what everybody else take is on. That would be great too. So, but Christy, you want to dig in? Yeah, yeah, I'll chime in. So I mean, I see the same thing as you, D. You know, working in advocacy, I talk to a lot of people, and it seems like. Um, the normal trajectory is that people tend to get better over time, their symptoms diminish in intensity, um, and their function improves. That certainly happened in my case. I'm four years free of the benzodiazepine, and while I still have some lingering symptoms here and there, I'm pretty much back to um, a normal life. Um, and it can be a low, um, or a long, slow process, so just don't give up, but the, the healing certainly does happen. I think uh, uh, it, it, in the area that we work, uh, that probably the, the most uh, effective uh, ingredient uh, of healing is connection with other people. And I, I, I think that we tend to downplay that uh, uh, way, too, way too often. The, 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 the problem with the GABA receptor drugs uh, like benzodiazepines and incidentally alcohol uh, is another drug that works in that same system uh, is, is that they anesthetize our limbic system. In other words, we're not as attuned uh, to the people around us while we're taking them. And, and, and uh, that, that works both ways. Uh, I mean, we, 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 don't, we don't heal. And, and uh, we, we uh, continue to be uh, uh, focused uh, uh, on, on our own internal processes uh, uh, more than is probably healthy. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I think what Peter said earlier about um, uh, working with people is, is you, you have to form a relationship 
uh, with with a physician, and uh, you have to the, the 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 dyad has to go with the pace that the person is willing to work at, and and um, it you know as uh, as Marx and Swinson showed uh, you know thirty years ago. Uh, the, the, the people who rely on drugs to make changes in their behavior uh, uh, don't necessarily uh, do as well as, as the people who uh, uh, connect and and uh, and uh, work with uh, uh, other people. And Dr. Rippo, as I you described, oh, sorry, okay. go, Dr. Martin. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that I think it's really important that we look at this as a fair, you know, sort of a we, we, we need to be kind to both patients and doctors here. Um, doctors don't give patients medicines to hurt them. They give them medicines because they need help, they're asking for help, and they think they can help them. And in many ways, the problem is not so much that there are medicines um, that are harmful. The problem is that some patients and some physicians are impatient. You know, there is a tremendous pressure not to spend time with patients. We get 10 minutes with a patient mm -hmm. to deal with a life long set of problems that they're struggling with. We're expected, physicians are expected to hold a magic wand and fix people, yeah. which is impossible. Society has no idea really at what point we should identify something as normal or healthy and unhealthy. We struggle with diagnoses. I don't think anyone would argue, for example, that a person with schizophrenia, whose life is total chaos, who's hallucinating all the time, should not be on antipsychotic medication, which allows them to have a relatively normal life. Uh, there are people with bipolar illness who can live normal lives if properly treated. I think uh, we tend to um, we tend to um, look at problems of living and pathologize pathologize them and want immediate solutions. We are an impatient society, and that is the source of why we use benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines work really, really well but they don't work well if that's what you take forever or for a longer period of time. There are no solutions to many problems without exploring what it is your goals in life are, what it is your expectations are, what is it your fears are. We call that psychotherapy. And there are different kinds of psychotherapy. There are psychotherapies that look into trying to understand what your motivations and what your fears are. There are psychotherapies that basically teach you techniques to relax, to focus, put your focus elsewhere. Now these things take time and they are expensive. And our healthcare system is very eager to pay for a benzodiazepine prescription, but not to allow a doctor to spend an hour with a patient who needs that hour. So I think this is the canary in the coal mine. Benzodiazepines are the canary in the coal mine. And uh, we are, I am very glad that we're doing this research, but I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. Yes, I agree with you. Of what's wrong with our society. And that may be more than you guys want for this interview. But I think most of you 
agree with me to one degree or another, yeah, right? 100%. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I will say, I guess on, on that note that in working with patients, I mean, I now use de-identified, but small examples from patients that, you know, I'll say, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint, and you don't have to agree that you, we don't know if and when you'll come completely off, you might be able to, but any reduction we can make will likely um, contribute to improvements over time in, especially I find that folks, you know, if they know they're noticing or their loved ones are noticing cognitive impairment and um, memory issues or, or depressed mood kind of dysphoria, um, that it can be really helpful. And I am able to say, hey, I have a patient I've been working with for a year and just they're now on 66% less than they were on a year ago. And they notice that they feel better, their mood's better, their family says they, they're more like their their old selves, so they're more you know, vibrant and interactive. They're not having as many um, cognitive lapses and issues. And that has been, you know, is very motivating and help, hopeful to folks. I think we can get too focused on all or nothing um, or that, you know, we want them or they want to be off tomorrow. Um, but I think instead thinking that it's a process and any, you know, we'll kind of make improvements as we can. I think, again, we need to learn from the opioid epidemic with, with chronic pain and, and prescription opioids and realize some people may not benefit from coming completely off um, or may not be able to tolerate it or feel that. And, and so we need to make sure we don't swing the pendulum and, you know, taper a bunch of people off um, too quickly. Um, uh, but I think we, we can always, you know, engage folks in the process and, and give them some confidence that we're in this together. And if we can help get them on even less over a period of time, we'll probably see some improvements. Perfect. Well, I think that that's a wrap, but yeah, I, I want to say as someone who suffers from bind myself and someone who works with people that suffer from bind, thank you for your work, because it really does bring a lot of validation to patients that you know, aren't believed maybe by their own physician or their family. It's very validating when you're going through it, especially in like the hardest part. So I just want to thank you just from the patients that I see people like me and Dee that have, and Christy who have uh, lived through it. Thank you for doing this research. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Yeah, thank you. Um, thank yeah, you. One thing we wanted to add to the bottom here is just some acknowledgements. I want to make sure I throw these out so they're part of it. Um, huge thanks, as Christy's mentioned up front, to Jay McCoubrey, PhD. Um, she, of course, created this with Christy Huff, and um, without her, this survey and all this work wouldn't even exist, so great thanks to her. A huge thanks to Joanne Laquan, who's been our writer. Um, she's the writer that's that's written all these papers with us, and she does amazing work. Um, and, of course, to our missing team member, Bernie Silvernail, and the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Practice, Best Practices, um, because they're the ones that have supported this throughout and kept the research team going, so um, I just want to thank Say, say a special thanks to all those people and, and see if anybody else wanted to add any little tidbits at the end here or anything before we close out. So, and then I'll hand it back to Angie. Well, Dee, I want to thank you for your amazing uh, analysis and preparation of all the tables and everything. I've never seen a, a, a study so well laid out. Oh, wow. Thank you, Reed. I appreciate oh, wow. that. Uh, thank you. Yeah. And thank you to all of you and especially uh, Christy for, for roping everyone in um, along the way and, and sharing the, the process with us. All right. Thank you everyone for joining us and we'll look for the research ongoing. I'm sure it'll be in the comments or the caption to this video. Thanks yeah. again. Thank you. Thank you all for right. all your help, Angie. Yeah, Thanks everybody. Thank